episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Zach here as always, and with me is Matt. How are you doing, Matt? Oh, man. Recovering from this uh, heat exhaustion of 100 plus degrees and the storm weather and everything else that took place this past week. Yes. But it's good to kind of kick back and we got a good friend on tonight. Yes. Tonight we have the one and only Justin Smith from the Herpeticulture Network uh, and the Herpeticulture Podcast, Snakes and Stogies, Corn Stars. Did I forget any? Uh, well, Cast, I Pondercast, guess. Yeah is in there as needed so and probably four to five more in the next couple years so who knows yes um i'm I'm trying to not be have the same workload that burke does yeah once burke passed like the the six show mark i was like yeah no thanks good no that's a lot so we are one of those six shows obviously uh, and what's awesome about tonight's show, obviously, is it's a trend. I forget what we would call that. We have the two podcast networks for Herpeticulture joined in one. Crossover. Yes, crossover. There we go. Uh, but before we get into our convo with Justin, we have our just kind of updates for Matt and I. So uh, we recorded with Owen last episode, and then I promptly hopped in a van and went down to Kentucky and spent a week in the field chasing crawdads, which was pretty awesome. Um, got to visit about 50 different locations, roughly. Uh, and what's kind of fun about doing that work is when you're bouncing down roads and vans um, for crayfish or passing beautiful herp habitat. So got to do some side herping, I guess is what we would call it, but picked up my 2022 copperhead. So put that one on the list for the year and got some black, uh, well, I guess it would be a gray rat snake now. Um, uh, we got some garter snakes and water snakes and all kinds of good good stuff. So that was fun. And then when I got back from that trip, had a clutch of, La- I think it's pronounced Lahita, Sonoran gophers waiting for me, uh, which is kind of awesome. This is my first year getting eggs from Pitch Office. And turns out that... Pichofis eggs are the same size as false water cobra eggs, so I'm totally prepared for them with the egg boxes and everything. Um, and then other than than that, uh, today, Father's Day, so when I'm recording this, I got a second clutch out of one of my big uh, falsies. So 14 more false water cobra eggs are in the incubator. Um, at some point, this needs to come to an end, but, you know, still fun. And I have a my last clutch of the year should be um, some. Uh, oh, damn it, Chris Painshab's going to kill me. Thorn scrub rats. There we go. Uh, if she's not gravid, she's the fattest thorn scrub rat snake in all of North America. So I'm waiting for uh, that female to drop. And Chris gave me the pair last year, so thank you for that, bud. Um, but that's really been the need on my front. Uh, what's up with you, Matt? Oh man, you know, it's been kind of crazy just in terms of generalized work schedule. Um, you know, just like every place in the world, we're all running a little bit ragged and short. Mm -hmm. So I'm still short two people on my team. And on top of that, when you get back home, you're like, holy cow, I've got (laughs) to dig for it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, 
like today, Father's Day, for instance, this morning I was going through just like any keeper does, goes through their collection on a daily, if not multiple times during the week, checking on animals and found a surprise clutch of leopard rat snakes. Oh, nice. Which is, which is always cool. Um, but it's always a little bit surprising with this particular uh, locality. Um, these were some animals that I purchased and they're Croatian locale, but I can, I've never seen them lock. <laughs> I've never seen them ovulate. And the only cue I have really in terms of the animal going into, I would say a laying cycle, not even a prelay or anything of that nature is they just stop feeding. Hmm. Um, which is interesting too, because this locality in particular only eats for maybe like three or four months out of the whole entire year. And they just like go up and down, never lose weight. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, there's eggs here. (laughs) Cool. Um, which is cool. Um, you, you, you can't, you know, kind of conundrum off of it Mm -hmm. or negatively say anything off of it. I mean, it's just awesome to see that species in herpeticulture being produced because there's not many people working with them anymore. Um, that being even said, I mean, it's awesome to see, you know, one of the people that has been on the show, um, Clint Bartley mm-hmm. with uh, Metazotics. I mean, he just opened up his shop. He's got yeah. everything kind of in play now. So it's really cool to see someone take it into a different apps aspect of the industry too, as well, and see someone kind of develop, you know, a show or um, a, a show stopping location, if you will. Uh, just for herpeticulture and, you know, kind of expanding into that aspect. So, but other than that, I mean, really right now it's just a a time waiting aspect of just waiting for eggs to hatch. Yeah. We're in that at school. It's weird. Uh, The only thing that's hatched so far for me are the first two clutches of false water cobras have hatched. Um, One's already had four meals and they're all heading to forever homes. The, the net, the second clutch just hatched last week. Um, but you're right. We're in that weird, like two weeks before all hell breaks loose when all these eggs start hatching. Uh, and it, it always lulls me into a false sense of security. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, we're going to be fine. And then boom babies. But you know, when I say boom babies, I'm talking about maybe 200 babies. What, like, what is your baby count going to be? It, well, you know, it, that's funny. Um, I was talking to Kevin Sheehan, um, who does a lot of the scaleless Texas rats, a lot of different um, morphs of Texas. And he goes, man, I'm so excited. I have about like 50 or 60 Texas about to hatch. And I go, I have about 150 about to hatch. <laughs> <laughs> of just those? So, of just Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it, it is a little bit of... Um, it can be overwhelming, which is always one of those things of time management yes. and kind of setting up everything appropriately, you know, and, and maybe tonight we can go into some of that aspect of how uh, keepers maybe set up things appropriately and how they pre-plan uh, for keeping hatchlings appropriately before maybe they offer them for sale, give them to other potential keepers or other collectors, um, because maybe that might be something of interest in the hobby. Yeah, no, totally. Today, speaking of time management, it's, you know, Father's Day, and my wife asked me, 
what do you want Colin and I to do, you know, for, for father's day for you? And I was like, well, Colin's going to be getting up at about eight and we're going to overhaul the entire collection on father's day. So that's what I did today. Uh, my 13 year old scrubbed a lot of tubs, a lot of glass, changed a lot of bedding. I have, I don't know. I've got maybe 30 naturalistic setups and then I've got about 40 tubs here at the house. Um, and yeah, with the time management, I, I kind of saw the field work schedule. Things weren't getting dingy. I've been able to keep up with it. But I just thought if I've got a day where I can have indentured servitude and it's allowed, I'm going to take it. <laughs> We're going to basically <laughs> clean our asses off today. So that's, you know, we're I'm in a good spot. But Yeah. Uh, and on that same token with Colin, I do, I yeah, I do want to thank you. Uh, you sent me. Everybody, get ready. I got a ball python from Matt, uh, and that little ball python, um, it, it's got several genes in it, and I can't remember what they are. All I know is that my son loves it. Uh, for some reason, Colin really likes ball pythons. He's allowed to like ball pythons. I'll I'll let him have that. He also has hognose snakes, so it it ends up equaling out to zero. But anyway, um, he's got the the balls and thank you for that. He loves it. Little things already eaten like three times. So we're good to go on that. Yeah. yeah. So you say that like a, like a dad who, whose kid got a scholarship to Auburn when you're an Alabama fan. Only a little bit, <laughs> only a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I might've shown him an Erodia, a false water Cobra, a thorn scrub rat, one of the like bazillion king snakes here. I'm like, don't you like these? Yeah, but the ball pythons are cool. They sit and watch TV with me. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I will say a king snake won't do that. You put a king snake on a couch, it's gone. <clears throat> so anyway, but you know, different strokes for different folks. So there we go. I digress. Anyway, so <laughs> anything else before we jump into this thing? Hmm. I think we jump in. Let's jump in. All right, Justin. How's it going, man? It's good. Welcome to Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Really good. Yes. So those of you who know and have listened to one of the many, many podcasts Justin is a part of know that Justin is, and I, and I mean this in a good way because I am this way as well, uh, what I would classify as a somewhat eclectic Reptile keeper, a, a man of tastes, a man of tastes, several tastes. Uh, and one of those tastes recently, I would say in the past couple of years, has definitely been colubrids. And one specific colubrid has been the foci of his efforts for quite some time. And that would be bears, rat snakes. So what we're going to do for the, the first half of tonight's show is just kind of do a dedicated bear die conversation with Justin specifically I love asking this question, so we'll just kind of jump right into it. When, where, and why did bear rat snakes take your imagination as far as being a herpetoculturist? Like, what about them made you fixate on them the way that you do? So the years and years and years ago, and I, I'm, I don't remember exactly when, and I think I'm going kind of crazy because there's one article in Reptiles from like 2006 – I think it is. I have it in my in my room. I read it periodically to double check my information when I'm doing things. Um, 
And then there was so there was there was that article, and then I swear there was another one, and it may have been a, even been a different magazine. I don't remember. I don't think it was the same author, but there was articles on Bairds at the time, and they were showing off those really high like gunmetal <laughs> silver steel looking Bairds, and I remember at the time I was probably fifteen. Maybe fourteen, and I just remember that that for whatever reason that issue when I saw that snake, it really stuck out to me. And that was like at the time I'd never heard of them, mm-hmm. and so it was it was like, well, those are really cool looking. You know, it's like it's kind of like a corn, but it looks like a freaking transformer. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it just stuck with me ever since. And then there was a point in time, probably back in maybe oh eight. Where I I had come across one I think on Craigslist or something, and so I had that. It was a male. I don't even know any like information as far as background or anything. It was just a, a decent looking Bairds, and I had that one for a little while, and then I took a break uh, and sold off a bunch of stuff. And that was one of the animals that went. And then, <clears throat> uh, circa 2016, I was up at one of the Charleston shows when they were doing it at the fairgrounds and there was a guy at a table who had some of the Mexican types. Yeah. Cool. Quote unquote. <clears throat> so he had those really cheap. And I remember like when I saw those on the table, I was like, Oh, that's really cool. Like I, I kind of got a flashback to when I had bears and stuff. And I was like, I, you know, these, these, it would be neat to revisit these and, and have them again. And so I, I got that pair for, for a really decent price. Still have that pair. Uh, and then it was just over time I just realized how enjoyable they are as a species. Like they're just they're really cool. You know, they go through a crazy ontogenetic, you know, color change and shift and I just ended up getting more and more of them over time and now, you know, probably a solid third to maybe half of my collection is just bairds alone. Uh, of different awesome. different kinds and different you know i got some of the mexican stuff uh that original pair like i said they were sold to me as mexicans at the time i wasn't terribly familiar with them when i bought them so i you know was looking at them on google uh and i was like okay cool i'll grab them you know i looking back now like the the dad definitely fits the phenotype and i guess we'll get into this you know yeah in a few minutes but <clears throat> mom kind of doesn't and so i don't I've bred those two. My first clutch from came from them last year after waiting for, you know, four or five years since I got them as babies. Uh, and I, they're, I call them Mexican types because like I said, dad sort of fits the bill, but I, I kind of have a feeling there's, there's other stuff mixed in there. Um, and mom doesn't really sort of look the part. So I don't know. They're just kind of, they're just kind of bears. And so I took the, the, the locality type thing, which we say in condos a lot, you know, if you're not sure yeah. of the locality, but it sort of fits this phenotype that, that falls in line with a certain area and it's a Bioc type or, you know, it's a Mexican type or whatever. So I like that. Yeah. <clears throat> sort of gives you a, a, an easy out if you're not sure, but it's also like full transparency. It's, it's, mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what these are. Dad looks like he's, he's got Mexican in him. Mom kind of, who knows, but it exists to some degree. No, and I think that's extremely important, especially, you know, publicly advertising things of that nature. You know, too often now you see people just pushing the locality aspect of it yeah. and really just misadvertising animals um, and, and just, 
you know, over the course of the past couple of years, it's interesting too. so many people inquire and say, Hey, I'll show you a picture. Can you tell me what the locality of the animal is? And you're like, that's not locality. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not how this works. No. You can get close with the phenotype and where it is, but you certainly can't say definitively right. that it's from that space or that spot. Yeah. Ooh. And there was actually an ad um, a couple months back, maybe last year that I don't remember exactly if it were Mexican types or the Loma Altas, uh, but they just had a picture of like one of the parents and they're like, these are Loma Alta birds. And it's like, well, one of them is like, is there a reason you're not giving us the other parent to that clutch? Like there is some with, with anything, you know, there's going to be some, some questionable things for sale and, and people. So, so then with, with, with the bear die, so you pick up that initial clutch, sorry, sorry, not initial clutch, the initial pair, you bring them home. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times what will happen when, when people do that is you get that first fix of what you think is going to be awesome, and then you end up working with it, and you're kind of like, yeah, this isn't awesome. Uh, so for the people that are listening, and I'm, I'm not one of them, Bairdi is high on my love list for North American colubrids. Um, nobody knows this. I had a little Bairdi phase back in 2004. So uh, there is that. But uh, – what about when you got them back and you, you know to your house? You're raising them the months after. There had to have been something that just kind of set you off on these snakes, given that they're now literally potentially half of your collection. So, what about their care, their husbandry, their behavior? Was there just something there that that you liked? Was it the fact that they weren't really everybody's cup of tea? Uh, just kind of, I just like exploring why people choose the animal that they decide to focus on a little bit. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of the, the total package in a sense. Um, I mean, care wise, they're, they're pretty bulletproof. Um, they do come in a, a, not a huge spectrum of, of colors and, and sort of, um, options in terms of, of morphs and stuff, but they still, they're for, they're kind of the same reason I call them the, the North American brettles because I, I love brettles pythons. I don't have any right now, but that's going to be one of my all-time favorite species of snake to keep no matter what. I will never not recommend brettles. And these guys are similar. Like they're, you know, they're, they're from Southwest Texas. Um, they seem to handle pretty much anything you throw at them. They go through a really interesting color change over time from the time they're babies to adults um demeanor wise most of them are actually pretty mellow like i I have a couple that are more runners than anything else but as far as having some that are you know defensive or bitey kind of like my thorn scrubs like they're they're not even close to that like they're they're much more relaxed um they musk a lot like that's sort of their first line of things so that's i've gotten used to that but um yeah, personality wise, like one of my that that same male from the original pair, like I still have him, and he's a puppy dog. Like I can go in there and pull him out, and he's just curious and checking things out. You know, it's not a fear yeah. thing. The female is, is is kind of a different story for some reason. She's much more high strung, uh, and just more apt to to try and get away from me as quick as possible. Um, but I don't know. I think a lot of it too is just the fact that. It's the, you know, going back to the Brettles thing, it's the natural beauty of them. Like, yes. there's no real morphs meet needed. There are some, and they're awesome. It's And there's a lot of parallels to Brettles, too, I think, in that sense, because there's not a lot of morphs in Brettles either. 
There's not a lot of morphs in Bairds. Uh, but just as is, you know, even if it's line bred or, or wild caught, which I do have a, a wild caught male from Chris Painchab, uh, which is still a pretty snake. He's 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 good looking. Um, it's just uh, you know you see him, you see pictures of him in the wild, and it's just it's odd that you have an animal that that's that that is that color in the environment they're in, and just naturally like they look like this. You know, that's that to me, that's kind of the cool part is like same reason I like, you know, my local corn snakes may not be special to anybody else. But to me, it's it's just there's there's sort of a uh, novelty sort of factor to it where it's like this is just cool as is like it doesn't need to be anything else other than than as as it's presented. And I don't know. I, I like that. I, I gravitate towards that some and especially with some of the line bread stuff, though, they just it's they're incredible snakes like color wise and. And everything else, they're just they're really hard to beat for a North American yeah. rat snake. No, I agree. I mean, on some of them, the ventral coloration can be outstanding orange and red, mm-hmm. even just as hatchlings. Yeah. And then you mix it in with like that gunmetal silver or black and gray. And I mean, it's just a, a snake that just pops. Um, and it really is an underappreciated colubrid, especially underappreciated colubrid because of the fact that. They used to cost what thirty bucks, yeah, and now they're non-existent. And there's many factors for that. You know, one is the value of the animal. Obviously, people weren't pursuing it or pursuing some of the traits or selected breeding of it, and also advancing it. But also, they're not huge clutches either. You know, in terms of an animal, I think producing. that's one of the biggest reasons people aren't aren't breeding them as much because it's the the fruits of the labor are much much smaller than what you get with like corns and and other you know false water covers apparently too. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Jesus God, you know, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, but they are know. a bigger species in terms of like North American rat snakes. Like they are sort of on the higher the the bigger end as far as like length. They're not super girthy, but they are just they're. For a pantherophis, to me, they're they're in comparison to something like a yellow rat that we have here, which are just big, like stocky rat snakes. These guys are they're they get long, but they don't get super thick. So they're kind of it's they're interesting too, just in that in that regard that they're not they're similar to all the other pantherophis, but they're not. You know? Yeah. So Justin, I mean, why colubrids? I mean, because you have a pretty diverse collection already. I mean, and if you don't mind, maybe go into some of the different species that you're keeping currently. Yeah, I've got corns. So I've, I've as of the last probably couple months, you know, nine months, whatever, I've been on a pretty serious corn kick. And it's 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 100 percent nostalgia for me. You know, me and my dad bred corns back in you know the early 2000s. And so there's just this soft spot that I've always had for corns, but I've, you know, I've, I've had some here and there ever since, but I've never really committed to them in any serious level. And now it's just, I'm really enjoying them. Uh, and uh, coming back with all the different color combos and color morphs now that didn't exist back then. Um, it's just wild. It's, it's, it's <laughs> nice to have to learn these things again and sort of get reacquainted with basic genetics. Cause never really having much in the way of morphs with anything that I've kept in the past, you know, it's, uh, it was, it was coming in and being like, how am I supposed to figure out how 
something that's het for five different things is going to work with something that's combined with you know something that's het for two other things and so it's nice to sort of have something to sort of re-explore again and uh so there's the corns i've got some some boiga uh so a pair of cyania which are actually going to terry burwell here as soon as this building's done uh i got some rhino rats courtesy of of dr loafman um i've got the Dion's. I've got the Bimaculata, both those, the uh, Elafe. Uh, I got my Jansenai, so my Ganyasoma Jansenai, which is a passion project that currently is like just kind of plateaued. I don't know what's going on with them. Um, and then I've got, I'm big on the green tree python, so I've got a handful of those. But uh, for the most part, it's pretty much just, just corns, bairds old world rats and, and green trees but colubrids i don't I, to me it's the i've talked about it before on 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 our show it's like with corns and stuff and bears you know you don't have to worry as much when you're breeding those it's much it's not it's not nearly as stressful as it can be with like chondros where the eggs are much more delicate and you're you know you have to constantly wonder if you got things right and if they're going to go the distance so it's it's nice to balance out that with with something that that frankly just doesn't require a ton of thought or worry. Um, so for me, like colubrids, it's balancing that out. You know, it's all the different color combinations, especially with corns, with the bairds. It's what I was talking about with like the natural beauty of them. Um, and then rhinos, I just I love rhinos. That was another species that was a dream as a kid. You know, seeing it in the, the pro exotic ads and stuff and reptiles and. No one had them, you know, and so it was it was like, man, it'd be really cool to own some of those one day and not thinking it would ever happen. And then now there's more people breeding them than ever. And that's it's an awesome, awesome species that I just I, I really love. And I've got a Barons, yeah. but I've only had that for a couple months now. So uh, we're in a chat together, which everybody needs to know. Yes, I've razzed you many a time over which one is the superior unicorn snake. So rhinos. Uh, okay. We'll let that roll. So, guest, well, I, so I was given the barons to yes. sort of take the Pepsi challenge. Uh huh. Well, that's what I want to get into. So has it changed anything at all? Or is it just, no, it totally, hasn't okay. but he's, it's, he's still Fair. very small. Fair. He's still little. It's too soon to really say, to call it. I think in the end though, I will still be team rhinos. Yes, especially in, in the in terms of like other people asking me which one they should go with, you know, that's going to depend on on your experience and stuff. Because I'm not going to really be very quick to recommend anything that's you know epistoglyphus. Yeah. Um, just because I you know you see too many people on online with with Boiga that are just holding it up to their face and stuff like that, and it's not small Boiga either. You know, it's like giant Melanota and pretty large cyania and stuff and it's like i just i don't want people to see that and be like i can do that with my barons well, well I, I would, you know. i'm going to jump on your train here because okay. i think that people are you know, i just got done writing this book so i did this deep dive into the toxins that the philodryanids have which is the group that they belong to in um uh, there's actually a paper just on baroni toxins and what it does to mice uh, and I recommend that every keeper of Bear and I read that paper. And if you want that paper, message me. I will gladly send it to you. But I can tell you that I want that paper. A Bear and I bites a mouse and it turns it to goop 
uh, with those metalloproteases pretty damn fast. And it was a little – I'll fully admit that it was eye-opening for me when I read the paper and saw what what that snake's able to do. Uh, and anybody that's kept bear and I knows the feeding response in a comfortable bear and I is something to be – something to behold there. I think that they're every bit as reactive to food as false water cobras are. And fa- everybody talks about how falsies go completely mm-hmm. nuts. There's actually a bear and I right up there. And I have a pair of tongs. That's about three feet long. <laughs> and the, it, it's the only snake here that I offer with those tongs mm-hmm. because it's at head level. So if something's going to go wrong, it's going to go really wrong. <laughs> but, um, but no, definitely. So I will, I will concede on that. Uh, I would say Bear and I are a more advanced snake than people realize because of their. Yeah, I don't know, though. I mean, this one that I have is is has at no point tried to take any swings at me. You know, it is still pretty squirmy. You pick it up and it's like doing the the crazy wiggle. Um, But it's never at any point tried to tried to nip me or, you know, I've never had any concerns of it trying anything you know it's not food crazy yet because i just drop feed which i drop feed with all the poiga too just for the same reasons like they're gonna find it i know they're gonna come out i know they're gonna eat it there's no reason for me to sit there and jiggle it in front of their face and and try to get them to take it so i don't i don't know but i have seen videos of like dustin grons feeding this feeding response on his barons and it's like trying to eat a plastic leaf because it missed the mouse entirely yes. and just never <laughs> noticed and like just craziness you know and it's that's the issue with them i think it's not necessarily I don't. I mean, I've I, we I have worked with one that was really defensive, mm-hmm. um, but I don't. I don't really see that as a species that's going to be like coming at you per se, de- defensively. Right. But right. they're when they are on, they are flipping on, man, and they get food stupid and just try to grab everything and anything like leaves with Dustin. Yeah. Um, I had one uh, fire out and grab a eraser on a pencil in my office and it's i don't know what the hell the consistency of the eraser must have given like a prey item or something but it like gnawed the hell out of it and i waited for it to quit and i got to see actually the puncture marks from the fact this was a six foot adult female like monster but there were there was plenty of uh duvernoy secretion left on the end of that pencil i was kind of like oh there's a lot going on here so yeah but for me, I'm I'm like I'm them. team uh, team rather not find out when it comes to yes. Boiga and all the other rear fang stuff and thrasops and it's you know yeah is it likely to to be anything serious probably not but I I still don't really want to find out no. I don't like you know I know wasp stings hurt <laughs> hadn't been stung by one in a long time but I'm not gonna go grab one just because it's not gonna kill me you know it's just yeah. it's. I understand why people like I'd love to hold my female cyania without a hook and I I'm fairly confident that she wouldn't do anything, but it's just like, I've also seen her get really excited over food and get really irritated with me and like decide that she doesn't want to hang out with me anymore. And I don't, you know, it just, I don't get the point of, of just waving it off. You know, the whole rear fang thing, like I've talked about with you, Zach, you know, it's, mm-hmm. Mildly venomous is such a stupid, stupid oh. term. And it's such a broad brush and broad stroke. And it's so much more nuanced than that. And after reading that book, um, you know, that, that yep. venomous bites from non-venomous snakes, you know, that gave me 
that that's what opened my eyes to the whole thing of like rear fanged is a very very vague term yeah it's a continuum it's not even a yeah yeah, yeah. and and even i mean we might as well just keep rolling with this because it's a good discussion but uh let, let's talk about everybody's favorite snoot booper western hogs what when you start diving into what heterodon can do I, I can flat out tell you, and there's people that are going to hear what I say and are going to think I'm crazy, but I've read all the literature on hydrodynasties, falsies, and I've read all the na- the literature on heterodon, and heterodon can hold their own with false water cobras biochemically 100%. I mean, I, I have yet to find an article that shows great big edema and blisters and all that kind of stuff with hydrodynasties, uh, like literal lesions. Um, Nasicus, Plains Hognose Snake, Western Hognose Snake, whatever you want to call it, that exists. I mean, you can go on the flipping Hognose Snake Facebook groups mm-hmm. and do an image search and see what they can do. So uh, I just think that we need to respect these things a little bit more than we do. Um, yeah, just- I mean, Brian Hayes just got just got nibbled on by one of his and he's mm-hmm. he documented it on his instagram story over the course of like the 24 hours 48 hours that it happened and he's like this this was an eye-opener because i i'd message him and kind of you know we had sort of joked back and forth it's like yeah but it's only mildly venomous you know ha 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 and he's like this is he's like it's, it's not anything serious but it's definitely not nothing yes <laughs> you know yeah, like he, he got some he got some swelling he got some some minor symptoms and stuff and he's like this really had me has me second guessing you know a lot of rear fake stuff not just hog noses and it's it seems to me that it's and this is why I, I prefer hooks when it comes to this stuff at least the bigger stuff you know it's like i don't need to learn that lesson by experiencing it i can no. see there's plenty of other people that that do these things get bit you know cyania a lot of boyga get sort of written off i think large melanota any large boyga is is fully capable of of probably giving you a bite worthy of a hospital visit um but i don't need to learn that lesson myself firsthand it's just like you already know what the potential is there like i've seen people that got bit by yearling size cyania and they had fairly uh impressive symptoms from a snake that's considered small um you know it's just it's like why why what's what's the point? Hooks are easy to use. Boyga especially don't like being messed with for the most part. So it's like what's like what are we doing? What's the point? Yeah, and and that's like the other part of the, the sidewind with Boiga too is you know, most of the people freehandling some of these Boiga, you know, they're fresh import animals that are parasitized, they're stressed and Honestly, they're not reactive mm-hmm. at the point of which they should mm-hmm. be. So free handling, yeah, the animal is not going to be as responsive, but you give that animal a year in captivity, deworm it, make sure it's properly hydrated, that animal is going to respond entirely different. Um, and I say that because I've seen that because mm-hmm. um, I've been bit by a boiga before too as well in that response where the animal finally became hydrated, treated properly, and it, they can pack a punch. So, yeah, I, like I said, I think like big, big adults of any of any species in that genus is definitely something that I, I would fully avoid wanting to experience firsthand, you know? 
Yeah. And, and this was an animal that was turned into animal control and I ended up keeping it and treating it properly. And all of a sudden I was like, holy cow, this behavior <laughs> changed overnight. <laughs> so, And it's a similar scenario so. with the Jansen and I for me. It's like I know they don't enjoy me messing with them. Usually when they're out, it's not that enjoyable anyways. So it's like I just kind of leave them be. It's like I, you already know the reaction you're going to get from them. And it's just not every species wants to to be taken out and messed with. You know, some of them thrive on on literal neglect. Yes. And it's just, that's just the way they are. Like, that's it's just the name of the game with that species. As our good friend Nipper, doesn't he always say with Boyega that the best way to take care of them is with willful neglect? Or, or there, there's some, some specific type of neglect, which I've always mm-hmm. liked. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, bringing this back to Baird's. <laughs> so um, why don't you talk to to the different localities? Just uh, there's there's going to be people that are going to listen to this. They're going to see Baird Eye and they're going to get excited. So mm-hmm. if you're getting into Baird's, what's kind of the, the introductory locality deal, phenotypes or different color patterns associated with locality? Just kind of do a, a Bears Basics 101, if you will. So that's, yeah, that's going to kind of vary. Um, what I've noticed or what I've seen in terms of locality availability is typically Loma Altas, which are, in my opinion, kind of uh, the poster child for the species. I mean, we're talking about linebred Loma Altas, mm-hmm. which naturally they are very silver. And that's sort of the thing with Lomas. And um, I think it's Highway 177, Highway 277. Texas? Yes, Southwest Texas. So I'll back up real quick. In their range, you typically, from what I've noticed, because I go on iNaturalist periodically, look at new sightings of Bairds. I'll save those pictures. I have folders in a Google Drive with every county, and I just save all those pictures to that county. And basically in the hopes of, like, compiling that at some point into, you know, like a, a, a slideshow or something to where I can look through that and notice the variations as you go from, from one side to the other of the, of the range and, and pick out sort of the, the phenotypes that you typically would get with that uh, locality. But on the western, eastern side of the range, so, you know, the closer to San Antonio, like that, you're on that, that side. Um, they typically seem to have a lot more orange, seem to be a lot more silvery, uh, and then as you kind of work your way west, uh, they start to kind of dull out a little bit and you get some that are more of like a like a grayish color. They have some hay sort of yellows to them uh, in the pattern there. Um, you still get some of that that silvery gray color. It's just not that like true silver. It's much more of a of a steely, like darker um, gunmetal kind of gray. Um and then as you go south into the, into the Mexico, you get the ones that have a gray head and then usually yeah. a uniform colored body, which is like a yellowish color. You may still have some pattern in there, uh, but that is that is a hallmark of the Mexican Mexican bairds. Like I've never seen any pictures of anything in Texas that had that same look. Uh, and it's odd because in their range, there's a pretty large gap from from the bottom of the range in Texas to the top of the range of, of the ones in Mexico. Like there's it's almost a uh, it's fairly separated and they've been they've been separated for a long time. And I think at one point they were a subspecies, but they're not anymore. Um, 
so there's there's one bigger pocket and it's like Nueva Leon, I think, is the is the area mm-hmm. in particular. And then there's a smaller pocket underneath that one. And I don't even know off the top of my head where that one was, but those ones do look like those have that that silver head with the uniform colored body. And those are considerably rare to come across uh, because they're from Mexico. We don't have access to them. Yeah. Um, a lot of the ones in the States are from, I want to say San Antonio zoo or Fort worth. Is there a zoo in Fort worth? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I think a lot of the ones that we have here originated from that stock initially. Um, from from however many decades ago when they got some uh, into the country, and I'm sure there's some that came in through illegal means as well. But you know, whatever. But those are going to be a lot less common. Those are typically going to be more expensive. And then you know your your Loma Altas. Those are just the the sort of the hallmark of the species, in my opinion, because you get the silvers at the base of all the scales. You get this just lava like fire orange. And so as they move, you know, that orange kind of disappears and then is kind of like with the rhino rats where, you know, the pattern and the the blues and whites between the scales sort of comes out as they're moving around. Um, And they're just they're they're unbelievable. I mean, they literally look like they're made of metal. And, you know, you don't get that with a lot of the other localities, but. They're all pretty like they're all they all have their their redeeming factors, and it's one of those species where. Pictures and videos may not do them justice because you have to see it firsthand. You have to see the detail, and then it makes mm-hmm. sense. You know, like you can, I can send post pictures and videos all day long, but it, it never seems to fully get just the the finer detail and in, in things to to really help people get it. You know, yeah. Oh man, especially when like the light glistens off their scalation mm-hmm. too. I mean, like that silver, that orange, that red, it just pops if you will, especially as like they're moving through your hands. I mean, they're, they're such an underappreciated species. Yeah. And then the hypos, I mean, the hypos to me, uh, you know, that, that metal color gets replaced with what looks like pearl to me. Like it's just it, it pearl marble, whatever you want to call it. It's just, it's, it's wild. You know, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's just, you don't see well, it in any other snakes. No. And, and like this, the sad part with the hypos is different than other species is the hatchlings start out not as beautiful or luminescent as like what the adult animal will actually develop Mm -hmm. into. And as that animal starts to develop sexually mature, I mean, it just pops. And then you got like this beautiful orange. I mean, it is amazing. Yeah, I mean my my older male hypo, he he's like bubblegum pink. Like it's wild, <laughs> you know? And he's the one that I I paired him for the first time this year and I you know, he went to that that same female that, that I initially got from that first pair, you know, the the who knows what type, supposed to be Mexican, doesn't look Mexican, whatever. So, that clutch she didn't do great this year. It was a it was a clutch of like 7 and 5 of those went were not good out the gate. So, the two eggs that are left are really healthy looking so that'll be the the first hats i produce but um yeah i mean that's that's the problem with the species overall is and i've said this a lot is is just the fact that people see them on tables as babies and they assume that it's just a gray rat or any other kind of rat snake because as babies they do look very generically pantherophis you know and i can understand why people would see that and be like yeah whatever and it's like owen's talked about with with you know some of the pythons and stuff like you have to bring the adults 
Because <laughs> when you do that, people then will understand, you know, and it is wild because they look completely different. You know, it's like you see them, see them as, as neonates and then you see a crazy silver orange adult and it's like, oh, okay. And people get it. Are, are there other morphs beyond hypo? Or is that the, the primary morph? That's the primary morph. Uh, Tim Spuckler has an anery male that, as far as I know, and as far as I think anybody knows, is the only one that exists. Um, I think he's either producing ghosts or he's he's going to be. Um, I don't know the, the specifics on that, but uh, the anery's really like they're interesting because their eyes are just like completely black when usually they're like a coppery color and, and you know mm-hmm. you can see the pupil and you can see the, the you know the rest of the eye with the anneries it's like just two black doll's eyes just pitch black yeah. uh, and you know that that uniform gray color that you get with with most of them to begin with but then you don't have any of that orange it's it's just a, a darker much more uniform looking animal um, I do notice with the hypos or albinos, whatever you want to call them. It's, it's interchangeable. It's pretty much just a, a T-positive albino. Um, you do, I think you do get some variation because the, the big male hypo I have and then the hypo I have from Matt, I don't think they're necessarily going to look the same as adults. Like His seems to be a little bit more purple. Um, and then you know the, the bigger one I have, he's much more of that bubblegum pink. And So I think there is, there is variation or maybe different lines of a hypo that, that maybe we just don't know of. That exist, um, but that's that's pretty so to go is just angry. so to go off that Justin real quick. Yeah. That hypo you have from me was actually outcrossed to a wild caught animal, okay. which actually might be partly why that animal is very different from the hobby too as well. Because I think once we actually start to integrate some of these different um, traits too as well, we're going to actually start to see different variation, especially in the way that those genes are expressed. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something I'm very anxious to sort of play with down the down the line is, uh, you know, that Loma Alta look. That's just the the silver and and the orange and and seeing how that would look basically as 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 a hypo. Um, you know, that wild caught male that I have, breeding him into some of that stuff and seeing what comes out. You know, it's just there's so much undiscovered country when it comes to that species that. I don't know that I necessarily want it to be a thing where it's like corns and there's all of a sudden a million morphs and I don't think it ever right. will be. Like I said, I think it'll always kind of be like brettles where there's like the handful of morphs and those are cool and all. Um, but there's there's just a lot of things that I've been I've been thinking about and, and wanting to sort of tinker with in the coming years and, and seeing what happens. So. so can we talk a bit about your keeping strategy with them? So pretty simple. Yeah, is it as straightforward as it appears to? Yeah, to be so. Just lay it out there. Uh, I keep them the same way I keep my corns. So they're on aspen. They've got water bowls, uh, multiple hides. What I do notice with them, and I think because of of their range and where they come from, similar to subox, like ventilation will help them. You know, they stuffy enclosures don't don't do good things for them. but it's it's interesting too because I, they spend compared to other panther ovis I've had in the past like they they're kind of like popwin carpets in that I have some that hang out in their water bowl all the time and there's nothing wrong with them hmm. you know I don't have mites I don't have any of that they just love to hang out in their water bowl 
And to the point to where sometimes I'll have to almost like with the rhinos too, like I'll have to pull them out and dump the water bowl and let them dry out for a day or two and then put water back in there. But I've got some that, man, they just, they love hanging out in water for some reason, which is, is just bizarre because where they come from, there's not a lot of that. So I don't, I don't really have an explanation for it as to why they're doing it. They don't do it after feeding kind of like the rhinos do. Like it's, it's, they just like being in water. They like hanging out in their bowls. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have my, my adults are in V seventies. Uh, hatchlings are in six quarts. Yearlings are in is it the V fifteens, the visions, V thirty fives. Um, really straightforward. Uh, I I pretty much run my room ambiently at this point because of my Aki cage. It heats up the room so much <laughs> that I just turn everything off. Uh, but I've kept them without heat in the upper mid seventies. They do fine. I've kept them with a hot, you know, a, a hot spot or hot end of you know, the 85, 86 range and they do fine. They're, they're, they're pretty equal opportunity when it comes to that kind of thing, which is another reason I think they're, they're really versatile species in terms of if you have, if, if your room isn't, isn't perfect and you have some dips or you have some highs, like they seem to do okay, no matter what. So, so you went, I know you did a trip to West Texas where these guys mm-hmm. are native to did, did going out there, help you change anything make you realize some aspect of their biology slash behavior slash whatever that made that you could then like at least have an aha moment as far as their care or why they look the way they do or anything like that yeah yeah well especially sort of the uh edwards county sort of davis mountains area uh and even like the rock cuts in, in the other parts of, of the area we were in, like especially at night, you know, it's not terribly hot at night. It's actually fairly windy. At least it was when we were there. And so it was fairly comfortable um, seeing the cuts and seeing, you know, the landscape itself and, and all the other things. It makes much more sense as to why a lot of things are colored the way they are out there. Uh, you know, being in Lajitas and seeing, you know, that was the one spot that they, they saw the the pink coach whip and it's like it doesn't make sense out of context but in the context of these hills that have just pink rocks and stuff all over them like it's really bizarre how many different colors there are of those rocks and and if one was curled up in there you you wouldn't notice it like it makes complete sense why they are the way they are and uh i still don't understand why why alterna look they like the way they do because there's nothing orange in the rock cuts out there but you know whatever uh but yeah, getting like I took pictures of of habitat in the different areas we were in, and I definitely sort of thought of things as we were walking around, and sort of like why why do they do the things they do, and and where they're at, and it's just like Casey Casey Cannon did with with Brettles and going out to Alice Springs and seeing you know taking data and and seeing the habitat himself. It, I'm I'm in full agreement with Eric Burke that a lot more people should do that if you have a species that you're really into. Uh, definitely check out the you know the habitat if you can, and go to go to where they're native and and see it for yourself because it'll give you a better appreciation I think for that species and all the other species that live in that area as well. So, yeah, I you know my dream is actually to go to China. Uh, <laughs> messenger yep. told me I can yeah, come told- <laughs> when the time comes. <laughs> he told me that too. But- I was like, man, I just that's. Because of him, China's like at the top of my list. You know, it's up there. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's such a cool looking place, you know. 
Yeah, unfortunately, I got a feeling that might be off the grid for a couple of yeah. years. Yeah, no. <laughs> the world today. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Justin, just curious, like talking about that. I mean, how about elaborating on Dion's? I mean, I see your love for that species too, as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of brought you into those? The guy right beneath you on the screen there. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, up until he had mentioned them, I really was, you know, I was fairly, well, not fairly. I was, I was very unfamiliar with that and the bimaculata. And it was actually around the time that we had had messenger on the show and, and he had come out with the book and stuff like that, that you'd help with. And, I've referenced that book with these Dion's and by Maggie, I don't know how many times just it's one of those things you ever notice, like you go to books and even though you've read the same, like five pages, 20 million times, you still go back to it, hoping that maybe some sort of mystery sentence yes. has appeared. And like, <laughs> there's some information there that maybe you would miss in the other 2000 times you had already read it. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I got them and it was, it's, it's just another one of those species sort of similar to the Bairds where it's like, they're they're different you know they're they're interesting they're uh fairly they're very easy to care for you know you have some so you you know what i'm talking about but uh and i when i got them from from zach you know i was like these are these are pretty cool and and breeding them for the first time and hatching out that first clutch a couple days ago you know they're it and then posting pictures of them and, and people are like, they've never even heard of those. Just like with Baird's people are like, I've never even heard of that before. What is it? You know, and it's, it's nice to, to put that stuff out there and familiarize people with these things. Cause it makes me happy that people are actually interested enough to be asking what it is and, and then looking into it. And hopefully maybe they, they end up taking the plunge in them and trying them out and, in yeah. talking to Rob stone, he, he made it sound like Dion's at one point were much more popular than they are. I don't know if that's the case. You know, Matt could probably elaborate on that some because he's he's had much more time with the old world stuff than I have, um, and it's 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 really surprising because they're they're small, uh, especially the bimaculata. They're really easy to keep, like really strong feeders. Um, mine are they're okay handleability wise. I'm sure if I spend more time with them, they would get better. Um, and their care, like they, I don't have mine on heat. I've never had them on heat, even when I was running heat on the cages before the Aki showed up, you know, and they just, they, they do fine. They did really, really don't seem to care. And breeding them was a breeze. That male wasted no time making that happen. Uh, seeing the process of how they hold onto the eggs longer and then they drop them and then they hatch after a month or so was, was different. Um, and then just the amount of, of colors and patterns and stuff they come in across their range. It's like, how are these not, way more popular than they are you know yeah. it's it fits the bill for the people that are into morphs locality stuff like they i don't get it i don't know if it's just because they stopped being imported at some point or if like so many other species they had a big following and then it kind of just over time people got distracted by other stuff and it just kind of faded away is there is there anything to that matt timeline wise yeah so um timeline wise there was a big push in this species right before ball pythons start to take their course. Um, and a lot of that came from European imports. Also a number of specimens were coming in from Tula herpetarium too, as well, which is a zoo in Russia. And a lot of those animals were being imported from 
Cameron from Bushmaster and being brought into the, you know, private sector as well as the public sector. And from that, you know, we were starting to see a lot of different locality specific animals, but also, and still to this day, we're still seeing stuff. Um, maybe not representative appropriately, I would say, because some of the animals that are being, um, advertised or talked about maybe actually locality crosses, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. You know, I mean, in the hobby itself, as, as long as you represent right. the animals appropriately, you know, so be it. I don't um, think the European peeing crowd likes that very much though. <laughs> well, what's interesting <laughs> So impure. That's what's experience, Justin? <laughs> no, I just, I just yeah. like I, knowing and seeing how hardcore you know. There's a Dion's group on Facebook. It's very small. It's only like 350 people, but like I don't. I've only seen a couple of posts, at least in some of the recent ones, where people were were crossing localities and stuff. And I I posted yeah. mine just the other day of the hatchlings, and it's like this is a Beijing to Siberian, and I was kind of expecting to get like bricks thrown through my window or something. But <laughs> I don't know. It didn't happen. Yeah. So so well what's interesting is that's where a lot of the crosses have occurred um, because the popularity in that species is immense overseas versus here in the States. And a lot of it has to do with the small size, you know, obviously the males only getting to be about 12 inches long and females growing upwards of two and a half to three feet, depending on the locality of the animal. But, you know, there's so much that still can be done with Mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, you're seeing stuff from, um, Sergei Royabov, um, with some like the crazy, yeah. the different hypos, pearls, and a lot of that stuff is just locality mm-hmm. cross animals that were found and just kind of, um, crossing those animals to really kind of pursue some of those different, um, phenotypical results. And there really is a lot that can be done, but, you know, even with the animals I have here, um, if worked with appropriately, they are very gentle animals. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually, for some of the animals I have here, I can actually feed them from my fingertips where they don't like strike. They'll actually just come up and just gently take. Yeah, my my female ain't that. She's, she's falling <laughs> she's out of the tub and onto the floor chasing attached to it like she's and then the male, that little Siberian male, I don't know if he was like that with you, Zach, but he's a little He's feisty, man. He's yeah, he's feisty. I open the tub and he's just psh, 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 and their strike yep. cracks me up because it's it's so much like Gloidius and Akistrodon in that mm-hmm. short just burst where like it's just like the yeah, first it's like bam, 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 mm-hmm. and yeah. it little little hiss they do when they do it too. It just I don't know. I found sounds like they're hungry. The, the animals that you have <laughs> got from me, um, they actually. All the colubrids I've kept, those things would musk. Oh, yeah. At like the bat of a hat. Like if, if I was just gently moving them, anytime that hands went on the snake, I was getting musked. That was mm-hmm. just the way that was going to work. I picked up the female. Today uh, I and think she you saw the, you know, the cloaca was open and I'm like, oh, yeah. I just popped her back down. I was like, I ain't not today. Mm-hmm. No. I think, Justin, when I send you the rest of these beards, um, I'll, I'll throw in a Dion that is finger tame for you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. And I, that's, you know, with the clutch I had, it's eight. Uh, I went eight for eight on that clutch, which was cool. One of them I had to cut cause all the others had pipped and that one had not yet. 
And so I was like, okay, maybe this one's dead in the egg. So I cut it and did the, you know, the touch test with my cuticle scissors and it moved. And then his little head popped out and he ended up coming out. No problem. Um, but like Chris Paintchab, he's interested in them because I've been talking to him about them. So I'm going to send him a pair. Um, Matt Morris, who's a big Condro guy, he's he's been interested in them. So I said I'd send him a pair. And um, I'll end up holding on to some myself just because I don't know exactly how old that female is. So I don't know how much, how many more I can seasons. actually answer the question. She should be six. Okay. So there you go. So you might want to hold on to some. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have the the one that he produced from from that same pair, yeah. uh, and that's a, that's a female. So I'm definitely I want to hold on to some, but I also like I was telling Chris, like I definitely need to get my hands on some some others just to you know get more things into the gene pool and and sort of change things up a bit. And but they are really cool. The bimaculata I struck out on this year. I those seem to be much more nuanced in what you need to do to get them to breed uh you have to get those a lot cool. that's yes. what i figured and the issue yeah. is is when i started cooling stuff down in november here most of december was still in like the upper 60s low 70s it didn't actually really get cold until probably mid-january and i cooled everything down until until early february and i was really worried the dion's didn't get cold enough to go but that clearly wasn't an issue because they were locked up constantly after I put them together. Yes. Um, the bimaculata, I don't, I don't know. I got a slug from her. I opened the, the tub the other day and there was a slug just hanging out there. Um, so I think that's the case. We, we, Justin got the bimac from us as well. Um, and I took uh, all the pairs that we, we received and actually put them in our cold room at the university, which holds at about 46 47 for mm-hmm. two months and we didn't get of all literally every species i think we went 12 for 13 this year wow. and um the the one holdout were our bimax and i just think that we got them i mean those animals i, I received them in late october it was late in the game mm-hmm. i just think they needed some time to settle in and that was it was worth a shot um so give it a go next year yeah <laughs> and i'd like <laughs> I, yeah, I really think that I, they didn't get cold enough. Uh, you know, with all the North American stuff, it's kind of whatever. I feel like you you just cut them off food, and even if they experience a drop and it's only, you know, low 70s, upper 60s, and then they get worn back up, like, that's still enough for them to go, oh, okay, yeah, that was a season. Sweet. Like, let's go. Uh, but with the Bimax, it definitely seems like there's there's something I missed there, and I, I'm sure it was probably temperatures. Um that's why I really want to get my hands on on some sort of like cooler that I can I can set and then not have to worry about it being 70 degrees in December and things not cooling down. Because Jake, you know, who I co-host THP with, he's like, just start cooling stuff down in like January. And I'm like, I don't I don't really want to do that. Like, I, I don't want to cool things down from from Thanksgiving to Valentine's Day because that gives us time to really load up on feeders because um, I cool just about everything unless it's a hatchling. Um and it's nice to be able to load load up on on food and stuff in that time and, and be ready for spring. But I don't know, like the bimaculata in particular, I was really hoping I could get those to go because that's just a cool species. And the fact that they're like Dion's are already small, but those bimaculata are even smaller. And they're just they're, they're really cool little snakes, man. I, it's another one that there were some at Daytona last year. And I think they were asking like two or three hundred bucks a piece for them. And I was like, mm, I don't know about that, but 
Uh, yeah, I remember when they were twenty five dollars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I bought Dion's. They were imported uh, in two thousand four at the All Ohio Reptile Show in Columbus, um, and they were thirty dollars a piece. But they were also horribly infested with roundworms, and they lasted about two months. Um, the only snake I've ever had die in my hand was actually a Dion's rat snake. It was one Damn. of those guys. And it was the wildest thing ever because uh, I, I, I picked it up to see if it was okay. It, it was croaked. <laughs> and then three two-inch long roundworms came out of the snake's cloaca Ooh. while it was in my hand. And I was like, okay, maybe this is what killed you. Uh, or contributing factor anyway. So Yeah, and uh, you know, I had that Siberian female that, that came with that trio and I don't know what happened to her, man. I just she was she was rocking and rolling and doing fine and I opened the tub one day and there was like a little bit of blood on the on the substrate that came from her mouth and that was it. Like there was nothing else. Yeah. No clue. And the only thing I can think is maybe she got you know, she got some sort of internal injury or scratch or something and maybe it got septic and I, who knows. But I was I was like that's that day it sucked because that was a really pretty snake and um uh, it's just one of those like what the hell kind of kind of scenarios where it's like well what like I don't have any issues with anything else so and I, I highly doubt I'm gonna get crypto from Zach yeah <laughs> it's probably one of the yeah, one of very few things. places that I, <laughs> I I am confident that I'm I'm very 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 unlikely to get any sort of pathogen from but I don't know it it sucks but because I was I was really hoping to like keep the Siberian stuff Siberian and like but whatever. No one else. It's just like bears. No one else is doing anything with them. No one else seems to really care. So whatever, you know, that's kind of the nice thing about having a species that's not super popular. You could pretty much do whatever you want and no one's going to give you shit about it. I care. (laughs) (laughs) No, in all honesty, though, I mean, the tricky part when you really start to um, investigate on Dion's and things of that nature and by Maculata is by Maculata really haven't been offered yeah. in the hobby for man. I'm going to say a decade. Well, then it's even a question um, of, are they actually really by Maculata because they are so genetically close to one another. Correct. You know, it makes me wonder when I see some on morph market and stuff and even other Dion's, it's like, I don't, I like, I want more Dion's, but I want to, I want to make sure they, they are, like really Dion's because they are super closely related by Maculata. Um, and I think maybe size may be the only real distinguishing factor between the two besides some pattern uh, variations. But that's, I definitely would like to, to pursue that genus more, especially since I'm kind of moving away from Boiga. Um, you know, I would like to, to bring back Dion's and by Maculata in a sense and, and help sort of get those out there again and, and, Get them as hyped up as I have with Baird's. Heck yeah, man. We got to get you on the right movement here. Your box might be bigger than what you thought. <laughs> I need a bigger room, man. I was just talking about how I miss, I kind of miss Amazons. And then one of my buddies was like, I got a pair of gardens I want to get rid of. You want them? And I'm like, dude, this is like the worst time to ask me that because I have nowhere to put them. Like, I am I am so strapped for space, and I've I'm supposed to get some more corns from Chris because we got this thing that we got planned going on, and like I don't I need a I need a bigger house, or I just need to make this garage. I need to convince the wife to to let me convert this because she don't want things in our room. But at the rate we're going, we're gonna be having some things in our room, my half of the closet at least. 
Dion Space. Yeah. You're still muted, Zach. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm back. Rookie. This is amateur hour. Rookie mistake. <laughs> yeah, no, I um it, it really would be exciting um to see Dion's really populate the environment um in herpetoculture, especially because from my perspective and Justin, Zach, you guys might agree with this or not, but I think they make a better colubra than corn snakes. I agree. Yeah. Um, with that. Yeah. Especially a male mm-hmm. per se, a first time snake mm-hmm. an only snake in a, a home, um, small size room temperature animal, no heat required. Well, also with, with their range as big as it is, like if you ended up getting some locality specific stuff like there, they'd be a really good candidate for, you know, a naturalistic setup sort of mimicking that. And I've seen <laughs> some, I have a couple papers online, uh, that I referenced a ton when I was breeding as well. And they were from, I think people overseas in Europe. And there were some pictures of some setups that people had done where there's like some pine needles. And it looks like that pine forest that you would, you would see, you know, in China and like in the Beijing area and stuff like that. And they would be, it'd be really interesting to, to have a, a natural setup for those. And I want to do the same thing with Baird's. Like I'd love, I took pictures of the rock cuts when we were looking just so I could get some sort of idea. If I ever do set up a, a naturalistic setup and I want to recreate that, uh, you know, Dion's that would be a blast. That would be such a fun species to do that with. Uh, especially considering that their habitat looks so much like what we have here. You know, I yeah. think people assume China is some sort of exotic tropical jungle area, but you know, talking to messenger, he's like, really, the climate's very, very similar to North Carolina. You know, the habitat itself is very similar to North Carolina. There's really not not a huge difference. It's not what people think it is. Um, and having all the stuff we have here, like magnolia leaves and magnolia trees and pines and pine cones and all that, like you could recreate something and make it look really cool, I think. And they'd, they'd use it. They'd love it. They're super active. Like mine are, mine are out and about all the time, especially my female. Uh, you know, I open the tub and she's, she's curious enough. She'll come out and kind of look at me and she's obviously looking for food because she's a mooch, but <clears throat> they're just, I had them. Um, set up when I had them in a four by two by twos PVCs with cork tubes and cork flats and all that kind of stuff. And they were, they were crepuscular. Mm -hmm. So like as soon as the lights came on, there'd be a flurry of activity, then not much activity in the middle of the day. And then they kind of would pick up with the timer schedule. Like, Oh, it's about an hour before the lights are coming out. Then they would be out cruising. And then the hour after dark, they were moving. Uh, But they were, they were a lot of fun. The only reason why they left is they left with the great old world exodus of 2021. Because <laughs> um, I just, there's something about the juju in this house that I can't breed an old world rat snake to save my life it's here. An Indian burial ground or something. <laughs> you're cursed. Yes. I can breed South American and North American stuff like it's going out of business, but something was just weird with them. Uh, it was stressing me the hell out. So, um, Anyway, but no, I, I agree 100% that I, I do think that Dion's are, I, I think they're even a really good snake to introduce people to just herpetoculture and breeding yeah. on because you don't have that you're not 60, gonna, 70, 90 day. And you're not going to get overloaded with babies eggs. either. You're not yes. talking about a clutch of 20 snakes. You know, you're talking about, right. I think I got a clutch of eight and even that sounded like it was kind of on the higher end for, for that species, you know, so. 
Yeah, I mean, I've I've had clutches of two or three. I mean, it it really depends on the locality, um, the age of the animal. But man, they're such a cool animal. But here's my question to you, Justin: Did the eggs turn clear before they, they did. hatch? Which oh, I was like, everyone, man. I read that, and like you had mentioned it, and I was like, oh, okay, this will be cool. Like one of them had kind of a window straight out the gate, anyways. So that was like that doesn't count. Um, but no, I mean, they all did start denting a few days beforehand and, um, I didn't get any of the, the clearing up though, but what it's so strange oh, though, because when I candled them, it almost looks like there's nothing in there. Like you see the veins and stuff, but you don't, yeah, and then they pop true. out and it's like a fully developed fat little snake. And I'm like, where the hell were you hiding in there? Like I have an egg candler that's pretty damn bright and. I see tons of veins, but I didn't see any signs of like an actual animal in there. It's, it's just, it was bizarre, but yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Cause I've tried to do the same with that species and you're like, Hmm, something ain't yeah. right here. Like they're definitely good or there's, there's life happening yeah. in there, but it's just the lights are on, but no one's home. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I don't think we've ever gone down this conversation with stone, but, Probably the last of those imports that came in in the early 2000s from Russia, actually, um, Stone actually sold them to me. Oh, okay. Um, And it was very interesting because a lot of those animals, too, were locality cross. They all came with all these different morph names Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And Rob and I would go back and forth, and I was like, I don't really know what this is. This animal looks way different than what mm-hmm. it should be. Um, that's why it kind of comes back full circle of as long as you're publicly providing that information, yeah. I don't see a problem with it. Yeah. And that's sort of the frustrating part with that is just, you know, if you're selling them to other people, it's like hoping that they also, if they end up moving those animals, they're carrying that on as well. And this is how many times do, do some animals get go through different collections and stuff, you know, and it's like how many times have the, the lines of communication been crossed and same, same issue with condors, I think that are, that get imported and, and stuff. It's like, that's a pretty, pretty general area that those animals are coming from, you know, and it's how many times are those lines going to get mixed up? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and a lot of that too is when you really think about it, um, you know, it, it comes into a fact of like how long, you know, do we have these animals in herpetoculture and really, you know, we have to cherish yeah. it. Right. You, you know, and, and that comes to the fact of keeping lines pure, you know, to the best of our capability, but also even providing pure information mm-hmm. off of that. Because even if someone, you know, is interested in a really cool looking animal, you know, we want to make sure at least they know what it yeah. actually is, which is cool. It's fine. You know, um, I mean, you know, as well as I do. I mean, I had some of those. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Off. Like, that's that's you see, I, I anytime I see those online now for sale, I think of you because I'm like, I'll bet you, Matt, will <laughs> will send me a message saying, you know, these are not what they're being advertised as. And it's not necessarily the person selling them or people selling them. They just may not know. You know, it's just it's so much. Yeah. 
so much going on there in that group. And I think it's the same with, with Dion's to a degree or it would be if they were more popular where, you know, you get the bimaculotic, uh, intergrades and, and stuff like that. And localities because their range is so big, you know, I, it, I can see where it would be very easy for something to get mislabeled switching collections, you know, going from one person to another. Um, so it is that that transparency and, and making sure it's known that they are what they are for the you know whoever whoever takes them home. <clears throat> no, and and that's you know the, the subset of this is just being honest. Um, you and I have talked about this. Our our group, if you will, our uh, Ganyo mm-hmm. and Phil group. Um, you know, we we continue to talk about how we preserve the hobby. How do we represent it appropriately and I think that's the coolest part of it. Um, so Justin, what, what are kind of your future goals within the hobby and how do you see your collection growing? I don't, I don't know. So I think it's one of those things where the older you get, you kind of, you don't feel the need to sort of keep up with things as much as you used to. I think that's sort of the, what goes on with ball pythons. Uh, you know, there's like the constant sort of morph chase. And I know that's that's not the majority of people doing doing balls is trying to keep up with what the latest and greatest. But I think as you get older, you kind of find same. it's very similar with cigars. You know, you get guys that like smoked a ton of different stuff when they were younger. And then they found that one cigar and like or, you know, this handful of cigars. And that's what they just stuck with. Like same with with wine. You know, you find you, that one you like. That's what you like. You stick with that. You don't deviate from it. It's just that's that's what you your thing. And I think it's very similar with with reptiles and stuff over time is you find the things you really, really enjoy keeping. And I think even on a maybe on a subconscious level, you end up gravitating more towards towards those, um, you know, the corns for me, like. Sure, you know, people might consider them like a beginner animal or whatever, but it's like I I don't care. Like they're just enjoyable. They're fun. The rhinos, you know, those are I love those snakes. Like I uh, that's a species I have not enjoyed keeping a species as much as I've enjoyed rhinos. Uh and it's just because like they're always out. Like my wife loves the rhinos. Like my child loves the rhinos. I know, I love I love seeing the pictures whenever it's, you post them or like we talk about It's just about funny because it. there's just this, there's one male of the reverse trio of older animals that I have and they're just, they're always out. Like they're always hanging out. They have these branches that they just chill out on all day when I'm in the room, you know, they're up against the glass cruising. Like I can open the door and reach in and just pull them out and they're not like scared. They're genuinely, they seem genuinely curious of what's going on. Um, they're just, it's such a fun species, man. And so like stuff like that, like I find, I like the, the otter stuff that maybe isn't as popular, like the Dion's, like the Bimaculata, like the Bairds. Um, and it's not like sort of a hipstery thing of like, well, you know, no one knows how cool these are, but I do. And it's just one of those things where it's like, you keep them and it's, A, you get them cheaper because no one's buying them. So it's like more for me. Uh, but then it's just the, you know, it's something different. It's not sort of your everyday animal that you see in, in collections and stuff like that. And it's just, it's cool to be able to produce more of them and bring them to the hobby. Uh, that's kind of my, my goal with the podcast and stuff in general is just, you know, helping to make the hobby better than it was the day before and introducing people to species that maybe they wouldn't have seen or heard of anywhere else. Uh, getting more species out there and, and, 
I don't know. You know, Condors are always going to have a special place in my heart too. Like I'll never not have Condors. I don't think, but as far as other Morelia and stuff, I'm, I, I don't really have much of a desire to keep any of that anymore, but it's just one of those things where you just find, you know, the stuff you really, really enjoy keeping. And I think you just kind of expand upon that. And, you know, if people end up, if, if Dion's end up taking it off again and like, awesome, like they're really cool snakes. I'm glad to see people are interested in those and Bairds and, and the other stuff. And it's just, it's nice. And, and breeding wise too. Now, like I'm at a point where I'm okay with not really selling stuff. Like someone, Chris messages me and says, Hey, I really like Dion's. And I'll be like, I'll send you a pair. You know, Matt Morris did that. He's like, he's been looking for Dion's and he couldn't find any. Uh, so I was like, I'll send you them. You know, it's, it's, it takes the pressure off when you're not like pressured to get stuff sold and gone. I just, <clears throat> I just like sort of spreading the love, you know, getting, getting cool snakes into the people that, that I know will truly enjoy them. You know, same with Bairds. There's, got a handful of friends now that they've started keeping them and they love them and it's like you need a female head i got you you know it's just i don't know i just i i like being the oprah and just being like you get a bears and you get a bears and you get a deons and you get a deons and it's just like i don't know when you when you don't really do it with the focus of like i gotta make x amount of dollars on this snake and and i think if you do it in the in the way that I'm kind of sort of looking at it now, I think all other things will will fall into place. And a lot of it too is paying it forward. You know, Zach has done so much for me in terms of what I have in my collection now. You know that I feel a responsibility and like I want to pay it forward and do the same thing for someone else that you know maybe wants to get into Bairds, they don't have any access to them, or you know maybe they're looking for something specific. It's like I I I like helping people out in that regard. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, within my collection, I mean, obviously I have the Asian rats, but I have the corn snakes, the bears, few odds and ends of different aspects of it. Um, but part of the reason why I keep corn snakes is because I give away a bunch of them. Um, and I give away a bunch of them to kids that might be interested in a first time animal. Um, you know, and, and, and it really, it kind of plays it forward. It, it brings forth a, a trend, if you will, or, or someone that might be looking into the hobby and trying to figure it out. And, you know, we, we as a collective group, as hobbyists, um, we need to make sure that we're looking at the future yeah. of this group and, and how we really actually look at legislation, look at the, the future of the keeper, because if, the keeper is no longer interested as an eight year old, Mm -hmm. right? If they can't afford a snake to get into the hobby, how does that help with the preservation Mm -hmm. of the hobby? And also, you know, from, and I I would say this too, from a monetary uh, standpoint too, you know, you could have a $4,000 ball Python, but that eight year old kid that comes by your table and wants to look at it and you show yeah. him, how does that make that child look at mm-hmm. the future of this hobby and want to pursue this as not only a keeping, but also the relative hobby of itself of pursuing it long-term. I mean, because yourself, myself, Zach, I mean, we've, we've been doing this since we were kids. And I mean, I don't want to go down a long rant of this, but I mean, 
we really do have to think about the preservation, mm-hmm. you know, going forward on this because legislation is changing daily, weekly. Um, and if we're not satisfying, you know, the interests of the community, we could yeah. lose our, our rights here too, as well. Well then even sort of on the, on the level of herpetoculture and like, we see species disappearing all the time, you know, cause the interest just disappears or there's not enough people sort of getting them out there in front of people and saying like, Hey, these are really cool. You should really consider these. Um, you know, that's why like with the Dion's, uh, with the Jansen and I, if I ever actually produce any, it's like, I want to see those species grow in the hobby, especially Jansen. And I. I would love to see more captive bred Jansen. I'd be out there like until we really sort of hammer down and figure out what exactly it is that we need to be doing to make that happen and get incubation down, you know, a little better. Uh, you know, like I know people that I would send Jansen and I and be like, I know you're going to be successful with these. I want you to help get the species out there more and like, really sort of build them up in, in her pediculture. And it's the same with Dion's, you know, they're easy enough. If I have someone that's genuinely interested in them, you know, like Matt Morris, who in my opinion is like a conjure legend. Uh, he helped out with the conjure issue, the magazine, we were doing that immensely. And so of course, when he was like, oh, you know, what do you, you know, you got Dion's, what are you doing with them? You know, you're going to produce any. And when I hatched some, or we had talked about it prior, I was like, I'll, I'll send you a pair. Like you've done a lot for me. And so I want to pay that, pay that back. And I know he has a genuine interest in the species. And so it's like, instead of hoarding them all and putting them all 300 bucks a piece or whatever, you know, and then instead I'd rather send those to people that I know are going to take them and run with it, you know, and, and, and do more with that species and, and sort of repeat that year to year until we do have more of them available. And there are more people that are aware of them and, and that kind of thing. So I don't know. It's, I'd like, well, help, I like hooking people up. Like I like, I genuinely enjoy, because Zach did it for me, you know, he's like, Hey, you know, yeah. I know you like rhinos. I got some, you, you want them. It's like, absolutely. Like you're making a childhood dream come yeah. true. It's like someone else is interested in something, you know, especially if it's like a really good friend of mine. It's like, absolutely. I'm going to send you these, you know, cause I know that you're, you're yeah. going to enjoy them just as much. They're really cool species and there's a genuine appreciation there. Yeah. Well, and you know, working with the bears and stuff like that, I mean, one of the coolest things I find is actually communal projects, Mm -hmm. if you will. Um, And the reason why is not only are you able to expand the collective group, the knowledge, the talking about a species, um, but within your own collection, sometimes your collection outgrows itself, right? And, And sometimes you're not able to keep everything you once were. And off of that, the coolest part that I have found off of it is the friendships mm-hmm. that you grow. You know, you, you look at our, our messenger, our inner circle, yeah. group, if you will, that I call it, um, you know, it, it's so cool to have those kind of open mm-hmm. conversations because without those, where, where do you really grow yeah. as a community? Um, and that's mm-hmm. what makes it fun for me personally. Well, it's a, um, it's a rising you know, tide lifts I, all ships kind of thing. You know, I, I look at it from the standpoint of, of class Olepis. There's not a lot of guys keeping mm-hmm. class Olepis. Like if I were breeding class Olepis and I hatch some, I don't think I would be inclined 
to try and get them sold and get a ton of money for them. I would go and find the guys that I know have been trying to produce them, like Andy Middleton, uh, you know, Scott Borden had some. I don't know if he still does or not. Like, and saying like, I want to send you some because I want to help get more of this species in more people's hands. But I have to start with people that I know are serious about them and want to want to do that too. And I think it's a similar scenario with right. with something like the Jansen Eye and just the stuff that just not a lot of people are doing. But there is, you know, it might be a small interest, but there is an interest. And so it's like I, you send it to those people that you know are gonna are gonna take that ball and run with it and help build that. Like I would rather do that than than try and fill my bank account, you know, and take advantage of that yeah, scenario. I agree. I mean, even uh, taking into account some species that I've worked with, the red and black yeah. striped snakes, yeah. right? Um, you know, I I have sold some of them, but part of that was just to offset my initial right. investment on the animals. Um, but after that, everything else mm-hmm. has been here. And, and a lot of that, some of those animals have been given to a few um, zoological mm-hmm. institutions. But other than that, you know, it's it's one of those aspects where those animals could disappear tomorrow, especially with the new importation laws coming into play. Yeah. And those those kind of strike me as like a rough scale Python situation where it's like there's nothing really difficult about them, like in terms of care and stuff. Right. Like they're pretty straightforward. Breeding seems pretty straightforward, but no one has them. You know, it's, so it's, it's like just, once you get them in the right in right. the hands of other people that start breeding them, like now all of a sudden we have people producing rough scale pythons on the biggest scale we've ever seen. And it's only getting bigger. So to me, it strikes right. that those the stripe uh, the bothothalmus is that what they are? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems like a similar scenario with those, but I don't. I've never kept them and bred them, so I don't know. But soon, my friend, soon. They seem they seem pretty pretty easy. Like I don't know. Like I don't know if it makes any sense what I'm saying, but like rough scale pythons, you see them, and it's like nobody has them. So people, I think, maybe get under the impression that there's there's something difficult about them in terms of like care and breeding. And it's like, there really isn't just no one has them. The availability just isn't there. But yeah. yeah uh, the red and blacks right now is just the difficulty of wild yeah. caughts, you know, cause th- that's with any species, right. That's kind of the, mm-hmm. the hurdle, if you will. Um, once we establish a collective captive breeding program for them, I mean, that, that helps mm-hmm. tremendously, but the mortality rate for the wild caughts is just the tricky part of it. Um, something we've talked about and we can, uh, reference to as well, that podcast I did with, uh, you and Phil mm-hmm. too, as well. Um, because we kind of went yeah. over that. I mean, that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, so Justin kind of to pursue this. So you've seen the hobby take multiple different waves yep. over the years. How do you see it changing in the future? And how do you see your face being involved in the hobby going forward? I, it does appear to me that we're in sort of a renaissance of sorts where people are kind of seeing that there's, there's more stuff out there than just sort of the bread and butter of the hobby and people are getting interested in it and pursuing it. You know, like there's more people now interested, I think, in, in sort of maybe just in carpets in particular as an example. But like people are, are much more interested in locality stuff and, and wild type 
animals, especially like with Poplins and stuff, where we can still get new blood in instead of the morphs. Like the morphs in carpets don't seem to be as popular as they once were. I could be completely wrong on that because it's just not a corner of the hobby I really pay attention to. Um, but just in talking to other people, you know, friends that are keeping carpets, like their interest is they like this. I have some that really like the striped stuff, but then they also love a, a wild type pop one, especially if it's got, you know, a lot of that orange and is a really, really nice looking animals. So I think we're kind of getting to a point where people are starting to sort of see the other things in the hobby and starting to explore and, and, and try different things out. And uh, I think it also seems to be, the American sort of model of herpeticulture of, of more racks, more animals seems to be kind of shifting. And it seems like people are now starting to take a turn into less animals, like small, like the European model, as I call it, you know, smaller collections, but their setups are, are much more decked out and, and much more nuanced to that species in particular. Um, I, I kind of ride, ride the fence on that a little bit uh i think if the species calls for it like the jance and i need something that isn't a rack that's what i'm gonna do for them but if it's something like a corn or something else that i know is just gonna do fine and not really gonna care then it's like i'm gonna roll with the rack you know it's, there's no there's no right or wrong way with that i think it just you have to do what the recipe calls for <clears throat> in terms of me and my my face um I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be like a, a YouTube guy. You know, I don't want to be a, a snake discovery. I, you know, they do really good stuff. There's a lot of, a lot of not great things out there on YouTube, but snake discovery, you know, for a while I was kind of like, ah, I don't know, but they, they do good stuff in comparison. Like their, their content is, is good. And it's good for people that are kind of getting into the hobby and, for me, and it's something I've been thinking about a little bit lately, actually, is like I think the the need, the niche that that Jake and I and the THN guys fill is kind of like I don't know that we're necessarily catered to people that are like new new to the hobby. Uh, I think like our our group that we sort of attach ourselves to is is guys like yourself and you know all the people we talk to where they're like they're in the hobby, they're not really into the morph craze or anything like that. You know, it's, it's, they're just guys that like the hobby and they're interested in interesting species. I think is kind of where we've, where we've fallen. And I'm okay with that. Like that's, that's, that's our people, you know, that's, that's how we are. And so I think that's sort of the, the audience that we've, we've sort of fallen into. And it's not a numbers thing. You know, there's, there's a lot of podcasts out there now and, you know, we do what we do. And if people like it, they like it. If not, whatever, no big deal. Like, it is what it is. We're just putting out content and trying to, like I said, make the hobby better than it was yesterday or last week and just having interesting conversations with interesting people and getting it out there. But I don't know that I necessarily want to be a face. No, I think hobby. that... Well, I think we're all recognized for some aspect of mm -hmm. it, right? So whether it's voice, face, personality... Yeah contributions, um, you know, and, and that's actually something I think people should be proud of mm -hmm. in some aspects, you know, especially if you're leaving a positive aspect going forward. I look at it a lot like music, you know, uh, you have 
I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, you know, you have your your bigger, more popular music sort of artists that have massive followings and stuff like that, and then you have the bands that that aren't like that, but their their following is very hardcore uh, and dedicated. And you know, it's like none of neither of those are bad. They just they're different. You know, that's that's what it is. Like, I don't think we'll ever be as big as you know. Uh, nerd or bar check or anything like that and like that's okay like i'm that's that's not really the goal you know like they they have their thing and they're they're following and if we get if we have people that find us that that there's you know some crossover there too like awesome but it's definitely not trying to be the the biggest and and most popular or anything like that it's just i'm i'm a firm believer of putting things out and putting out good information to the best of our ability and doing good things for people. And I think everything else just follow follows, you know, falls into place after that. No, I agree. And I, I think that's actually a, a good target to end on this segment. Um, you know, just to leave it in a positive mm-hmm. place, especially for this. Um, so Justin, if people want to get a hold of you, how should they get a hold of you? Uh, I'm more active on Instagram than anything else. Uh, it's Palmetto Coast Exotics, and we do have a YouTube channel, which is the Herpeticulture Network. So that's where we post a lot of the episodes. Um, periodically, we do do like actual videos. We just did a collection tour of Jake's stuff. Um, I think next this upcoming weekend, I'll probably start filming some of my stuff because I don't think we've ever done a collection tour of mine. Uh, and I'll have the house to myself for the weekend, so I'll have plenty of time and and focus to do that and um the herpeticulture network is is where all the podcasts are you can find us you know itunes spotify amazon podcasts audible for whatever reason like audible has podcasts on it i don't i don't know why um google youtube like i said facebook instagram all that good stuff so pretty easy to get a hold of and pretty responsive Right on. Well, for those that really haven't been hearing Zach in the background, Zach lost power to his house about 25 minutes ago. Um, so Zach is no longer on this call. But if you wanted to reach out to Zach, he's on both Facebook and Instagram, and he's still looking for graduate <laughs> students too as well. So I'll give him that plug because I'm sure he would want that made. Um, and myself, you can find me on Instagram and on Facebook with Sarpamitra. Um and thanks again for listening, and we look forward to presenting another episode it's here. One of the best soon. podcasts. It's one of my favorites, personal favorites. I don't think I've missed an episode, man. And I don't, I don't usually have a whole lot of time to listen to podcasts, but like when y'all drop a new one, man, I'm all about it. Like I'm, I'm listening ASAP. Oh man, thanks again. Really I mean, appreciate it.